If you were able to join us a few weeks ago, we studied a concept of why does God allow suffering. And in that previous lesson, we discovered some things about suffering. We discovered that suffering in a Christian can often bring about incredible positive results. We noted in suffering that it uh, keeps the world from becoming too attractive. Uh, that's, that's one of the big things, is, is that this world is not a wonderful place. It's not a, a great place. There's a lot of trials in it. And uh, so by suffering, we get to looking for better things to come. And we realize that there are promises of better things to come. Also, it can bring about the best in people. And I think we've seen it during this pandemic. We've seen a lot of people step up and, and do things that were out of their comfort zone, try to be better neighbors and better Christians in general and help other people around them. It also gives us the opportunity to silence the enemies of God. You know, there are men out there that uh, say that God doesn't exist, that God doesn't love us, that God is not a God of love, He's a God of vengeance. And uh, when we, when we uh, endure suffering, then that silences these people. They don't understand how we can be that way. It makes us more dependent on God. And that, that's a very good thing. We always need to realize that we, we need to be dependent on God. It makes us more sympathetic, we found out. Uh, being sympathetic is something that's much easier to do when you are enduring, uh, some, when you have endured something that someone else is now enduring. When you see them going through that struggle, uh, you sympathize with them. You understand that. And you understand exactly what they're going through. And it makes you much more sympathetic to what they're enduring. And finally, we learned that it teaches you how to pray. We realize that uh, we thought we knew how to pray, but when it comes down to something that we really uh, have a problem with in our life, we're really struggling with, or someone we love is struggling with, uh, a severe illness, uh, a severe spiritual problem. Uh, it's a matter of life and death, so to speak, and we learn how to pray then. When you pray for something and you pray for it uh, all day long, you begin to learn how to pray. And when we found out these things, we begin to understand why God would and does allow suffering to exist. So in today's study, I want to look at an even more difficult question, and that is who or what causes suffering. Who's responsible? We look for, for people to blame. We want to cast the blame on someone. So I, I would ask you to consider as we go through this study, is it God Himself? Is He responsible for the suffering we endure? What about Satan? Does he have a hand in it? Uh, can we look at him as being the one responsible? Maybe it's simply the natural consequences of cause and effect. Uh, you know, I don't have all the answers to these questions, but I'd just like to share a few thoughts with you for a little while uh, about some things that I believe are in harmony with the Word of God. You know, suffering may be the result of our own actions. And it's difficult to look in the mirror and know you're looking at the person that caused you to be suffering. But there are laws of cause and effect when you, you cause something, there's an effect that follows that. 
there are laws of action and reaction. When you take a particular action, there is a reaction for that. And sometimes that reaction is not what we expect it to be or want it to be. And then finally, there is God's law of sowing and reaping. And we know what that is. If you sow thorns, if you sow cactus seeds, if you sow weed seeds, that's what you're going to reap. You're not going to reap good things. But if you sow good things, good things is what you will reap. So we have to be mindful of that law of sowing and reaping. If we violate these laws, the consequences are often grave and they're often severe. It's a simple thing and we understand that if you step off of a three-story building, the consequences are going to be bad. You are defying the law of gravity, a law that God put in place a long time ago. As all of these laws, there are many laws that God put in place. And we understand that if we violate these laws, there's going to be suffering. If we step in front of an oncoming truck or pull in front of an on, oncoming truck, the consequences are going to be grave. They're going to be severe and there's going to be suffering. If you insist on feeding yourself constantly with drugs and alcohol, there's going to be consequences. Perhaps even if you insist on feeding yourself constantly with junk food, there may be consequences. Exposing yourself to contagious diseases as we have as we are dealing with today, maybe dangerous chemicals or pollutants, or perhaps not using the proper equipment when we handle these items, there will be consequences. These are, are cause and effect consequences, action and reaction consequences, consequences of sowing and reaping. And in such cases, suffering is often experienced. Whether you realize it or not, maybe some law some natural law has been violated. You know, it's not necessarily because of some evil. It's not necessarily a morality question. It's just the way the world's designed. It's the way God designed the world. We understand if you fall, you get hurt. So you learn, you try to learn not to fall. And we should try to learn not to violate these natural laws. But sometimes we do anyway. Suffering may be the work of Satan. You know, if, if someone... Let me back up just a second. Uh, when when uh, suffering is because of someone else violating laws, this becomes very difficult. It's really hard to accept. If a car wreck is caused by a drunk driver or someone else's carelessness, that's hard to accept. When someone else abuses drugs or alcohol and an injury occurs or death is caused by, for an innocent person, that's hard to accept. But it's still a natural law that's being violated or broken. And I think if you add these natural laws up and you think about it and you consider all the suffering is in the world, you'll discover that many of them are due to these natural laws being broken. Many times if you want to blame someone, just look in the mirror and you'll see the person that you must blame. Now let's look at uh, the fact that suffering can be the work of Satan. The Bible presents it as such that Satan can cause suffering, in fact that he do does cause suffering. 
We see it back in the Old Testament in the case of Job, a uh, familiar story to, to most of us. In Job, the first chapter beginning in the eighth verse, we see that uh, the Lord and Satan was having a discussion here. And the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God, and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered to the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? So let's stop right there for a second. And we see that God was pleased with Job. Job, God was pleased with the life Job was leading. He said he was an upright man. He called him a perfect man. One that uh, avoided evil and one that sought after good. So God didn't have a problem with Job. It was Satan that had the problem. So Satan makes an accusation against God. And he says the reason that Job loves you or follows you or obeys you is because he's afraid not to. In verse 10 he says, Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is, is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy faith. So we see that Satan issues a challenge to God. And he challenges him to take away everything that he has given uh, Job all the protection he's given him, take it away. And he says, he'll curse you to your face. In verse 12, we find that God rebuffs Satan's challenge, but he allows him to afflict Job. It says there in verse 12, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thine power. But I want you to notice that he puts a restriction upon him. And that restriction says, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. You can't touch Job. You can touch everything he owns, everything he, he has, everything that's a part of his life, but you can't t put your hand on Job. And this brings back a thought. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, the Bible says God is faithful who will not suffer us to be attempted above that we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. He put a restriction on it, didn't he? He won't allow Satan to tempt us above that we are able to endure. <clears throat> we see in Job the second chapter, beginning in verse 4, that it wasn't good enough for Satan. He still wanted more. The Bible says there in verse, verse 4 of Job chapter 2, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Verse 5, but put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. He issues another challenge to God. He says, touch the man's flesh. Take away his health and he'll curse you to your face. And again, God doesn't, doesn't go for it. He doesn't take the bait, so to speak. But he again, he allows Satan to afflict Job. But again, there's restrictions. Verse, uh, verse 6 of Job chapter 2, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So you can afflict his flesh, you can take away his health, but you can't kill him. Now I want you to know that God doesn't allow Satan to afflict Job here to prove Satan wrong. He could care less whether Satan's wrong or not. He is allowing Job's faith to be tested. 
And Job, Job passes that test. It's difficult. There's some difficult times for him. He has questions. He wants to know why this is happening. But in the end, he understands that God loves him and that God is still in power and that God is more powerful than Satan. And Job's faith doesn't waver. We also see that there are persecuted Christians back in the, in the New Testament in the first century. There are persecuted Christians today. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom, he, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You see, there are afflictions in this world. We look around the world and we see afflictions. But what we think sometimes is that Christians are exempt from those afflictions, and we're not. It tells us right here that those same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren, in the Christians that are in the world. Well, what way? In what way does Satan afflict us? We understand that he, he afflicts us spiritually. He understands that we understand that he puts obstacles in front of us and tries to get us to sin and fall to sin and succumb to sin. But I want you to notice something else in Luke chapter 13. Here we see a woman that had an affliction. The Bible says there in Luke 13, beginning in verse 11, And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. 18 years this woman had had this affliction. And the Bible says she was bowed together. She was bent at the waist and she couldn't straighten up. The Bible says, and she could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And the Bible says that from that moment she was made straight. She could straighten up. But how do we know that Satan was responsible for this? Or do we know that Satan was responsible for this? The ruler of the synagogue was not happy about this because Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. So Jesus makes a statement and gives us a little more information as he is uh, proving his right to heal this woman on the Sabbath day. And we find that a little further down in verse 16. The Bible says, And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound? You see, Satan was responsible. He was responsible for physically afflicting this woman. He says, lo, these 18 years she has been afflicted. And should she not be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? We see the mercy of Jesus here. So what's Satan's objective? And it's quite simple, really. We go back and we see it and there in his dealing with Job. It's to get us to curse God. That's what he wanted to do in Job's case. It's what he wants to do today. To get you to curse God. And there are people that do it. There are people that are experiencing suffering today that are blaming God and are cursing God because of that suffering. But why does God allow Satan to tempt us in this way? Because God can use such suffering to make us better. We have a couple of scriptures in the New Testament that we, we don't study a lot of times. The language of them is a little difficult to understand. 
And so we, we kind of tend to avoid them because they seem like some things that we don't want to think about uh, occur in these, in these scriptures. But I think they make application in this study today. The first is, we find in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 20. We find a couple of guys here that had sin problems in their life. And Paul says something of these people, of these two men, and he says, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, of Hymenaeus, the Bible says that he, he was one that denied the resurrection. Uh, I suppose by association, perhaps Alexander was, a, was of the same mind. We don't know that for sure. But we see here that Paul says that he delivered them to Satan. Now what does that mean? Does Paul have the power, the authority to deliver a person to Satan? Can he pass that judgment? You know, Paul had a lot of power and authority as he walked here on this earth. He had power to do miracles. He had power to heal people. But does he have the power to condemn a person to Satan, to condemn a person to hell? I don't believe he has that power. I don't believe he ever had that power. I don't believe he indicated that he did have that power. Now I want to ask you something else about this situation. If a, if a, a man was delivered to Satan, if he was put in the presence of Satan, would he, if he was turned over to Satan, would Satan teach him not to blaspheme? I think actually the exact opposite would occur. I think Satan would would teach him how to blaspheme more perfectly. So this doesn't make sense if we look at it this way. But I think if you consider the fact that these men were very much still alive, and the hope was, the prayer was, that they would learn not to blaspheme. We find another scripture in 1 Corinthians 5 and 5. It's very simpler and it's simple, and in fact, Paul was involved in this as well. The church at Corinth had a sin problem in the congregation there. And it was such a destructive sin problem that it had to be dealt with. And in speaking of the people that were involved in this sin, Paul said to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds pretty severe. That sounds like suffering is happening. It continues on and said that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, if these men are dead, or if these people are dead, if their flesh has been destroyed completely and they've died, how are they going to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus? How is their spirit going to be saved? It can't be if they're dead already. So I think the same thing is in effect here. I don't think these people are dead. I think the hope was that something would happen that they might change their ways that their spirit might live, that their spirit might be saved in the end. We don't know if that ever happened, but I think that was the hope. You know, I think Paul, what Paul was doing in both of these instances was saying, go your way. Live how you want to live. Do what you want to do. You're not going to like the result. You're not going to like what happens. You're not going to like the suffering you endure because of that. And hopefully it will cause you to turn back to God. That's how God uses this type of suffering and the hope that it will perfect us and the hope that it will turn us back to God and save us in the day of judgment. In James chapter 1, 
verse, beginning in verse 2, the Bible says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Job's faith was tried, and he had patience. What about you today? When your faith is tried, do you have patience? The trying of your faith works patience. Verse 4 says, But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know, it's a good thing to have our, our faith tried. And if we do that with patience, we'll become better Christians. We'll become better able to endure in the future than we have been in the past. We also need to consider the reward that God has promised for those that do endure Satan's trials and temptations. 1 Peter 5 and verse 10 says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. You know, sometimes Satan is permitted to bring suffering upon the righteous. In the case of Job, through the use of outside influences and outside circumstances, he even caused the death of Job's children. But even in that situation, he was limited. He couldn't kill Job. He was restricted to a point. He's still restricted to a point today. I don't believe he has the indiscriminate ability to cause death today. Otherwise, we'd all be dead already. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says that he has the power of death. That's very interesting. What does that mean? What does it mean that he has the power of death? It means he introduced it. That doesn't mean he has the indiscriminate power to inflict it upon mankind, but he introduced it. Way back in the Garden of Eden, concerning Adam and Eve, death became a part of his dominion, and he introduced death when he seduced man away from God, when he caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden. He brought terrible things on mankind. Afflictions, woes, thorns and thistles. And ultimately it resulted in death. He also made it terrible. He made, it, he made death a terrible thing. I want to give you an example of that. In Psalms 116 and 15, the Bible says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Is that the way you look at death? That it's precious? You know, the death of someone who is a saint, a righteous child of God, is that precious? Is that something that you look forward to? The Bible says God looks at it that way. Satan is the one who turned death into a point of terror and distress. He's the one that caused us to look at it this way. He's the one that has instilled that fear in us. John 8 and 44 says that he was a murderer from the beginning. Through his deceit, death both physically and spiritually came into the world. His purpose? To devour us. To get us to curse God. To drive a wedge between us and God. But by the grace of God, he can use that suffering to perfect us, to establish us, to strengthen us, strengthen us, to ground us in the truth as children of God. But does God ever cause suffering? Is there ever a time when God himself 
bring suffering on his children? That's a difficult question. As we said in the beginning, God has set certain laws of nature in order at the creation. So from that point of view, then yes, I suppose you could say he's responsible in some way. However, he has instructed us about those laws. He gives us the opportunity to avoid violating those laws as much as is within our control anyway. We can make decisions that avoid suffering from those laws. We can avoid alcohol and drug abuse. We can avoid the, uh, violating the law of gravity if we're careful. We can avoid violating God's law of sowing and reaping. But does God ever operate directly on you and cause you to suffer disease or illness? Does He do that? If you say no, then there's a couple of scriptures that you're going to have to deal with. There are two situations in the New Testament that I'd like to talk to you about for just a moment. The first being in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and we're not going to read those verses. It's a a story that's very well known. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and they gave part of the money to the church, to the, to the apostles. But the apostles asked them if that was all of the money. And they lied. And they said, yes, it's all the money. But it wasn't. They kept back a, a portion of what they had received. And when they... Uh, made that claim when, the, as, as Peter says there, they lied to the Holy Ghost. They fell down dead on the spot. Their life was forfeit. And they were dead. In Acts chapter 12, and verse 21, Herod the king came out in his fancy royal clothes. He sat on his throne and the Bible says he great, gave a great speech. And the people were just in awe. And they said it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And you know Herod was happy to, make them, to let them make that distinction. He was happy to have that praise. And he did not correct them in that regard. And in verse 23... The Bible says, and immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. That's pretty severe. That's pretty severe suffering. His life was forfeit because he made an error. An error that perhaps we might have made today. But I want you to notice what happened after both of these situations. Going back to Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira in verse number 11, the Bible says, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these sayings. Great fear. The faith of the church was increased. The knowledge of God was increased. Fear of God was increased. I want you to also notice what happened in the case of Herod the king in Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. But the Word of God grew and multiplied. The Word of God grew and multiplied. You know, those are pretty t two pretty significant events. And out of both of those events, good came. 
you know, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to see why that would happen, but I want you to consider something. There is a Greek word in the New Testament. That Greek word is semion. Semion is an indication, especially ceremonial or supernatural. It's a miracle. It's a sign. It's a token. It's a wonder. It's interesting in the New Testament that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that word Simeon is translated sign or signs. In John and the book of Acts, it's translated miracle or miracles. You know, when we think about a miracle, we think about uh, disease cured, deaf hear, blind see, the dead are given life again. It's a wonderful thing. But here we see two situations, two tokens, two signs, two wonders that cause the same thing. You know, a miracle, when some, someone was raised from the dead, when someone received their sight, when, when someone who was deaf could hear again, that increased the faith among the church. That increased people's knowledge of God. It was a wonderful thing. Well, in these two instances, the same thing happened. The Word of God, the Gospel was multiplied. It grew. And people's faith grew. And they had a healthy fear for God. You see, that's what this was. It was miracles. Well, we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that there a, was a time when miracles would cease. And prophets would cease. So we can confer from that that God acting directly upon us and taking our life from us has ceased also. But still there's a concept of the chastisement of God. It's a biblical concept. And it's something that we need to consider. God chastises His children. That cannot be denied. In Hebrews ch uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, I want to read from you from the New King James Version here. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You see, if we haven't been chastised by God, then we're not legitimate. We're not His sons and daughters. We don't belong to Him because He chastised those who are His children and those whom He loves. But what, what would be the purpose for this? Why would God choose to chastise His children? Well, maybe it's just necessary. You know, as parents... Sometimes it's just necessary to chastise your children. It's unavoidable. If you want them to grow up to be the, the men and women that you want them to be, if you want them to be Christians, if you want, to be, want them to be strong pillars of the community and, and loving people and kind people and Christians in every sense of the word, sometimes it's just necessary to chastise them. Why would it not be necessary for God to chastise us? In Hebrews chapter 12 beginning in, in uh, verse number 9, 
we see the purpose of God's chastisement. Furthermore, we are fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. We understood. You know, we may have had to grow up a little bit. We may not have liked it at the time, but eventually we grew up and we understood that the fact that our fathers chastised us was a good thing. And we gave them reverence for it. Continuing on, it says, Shall we not much rather be the subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seems, seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. You see, it's good for us. It improves us. It strengthens us. It establishes us. It grounds us in the truth. And then perhaps it's just to save us from the world. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 31, says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Hopefully when we are chastened by the Lord, we grow. And we will not be condemned with the world. The world's going to be condemned someday. And we don't want to be a part of that. You know, when you think about it, why wouldn't God, who loves us, use the things that He's created and placed around us to wake us up sometimes. To cause us to reflect on our lives and our relationship to Him. And make us understand that we need Him more than we ever thought we did. Why wouldn't God use the things that He has established in this world to encourage us to repent and to turn to Him to realize that He is the only way we can reach eternal life? And the only way that we can have hope of salvation. When you endure suffering in your life, maybe it's just simply you've violated the law of nature. Maybe someone else has violated the law of nature and that causes you to suffer. Maybe you violated the law of nature and cause someone else to suffer. Maybe it's the work of Satan. Maybe it's the chastisement of God. You know, it's, it's rather difficult to tell sometimes. Uh, if it's the work of Satan, maybe he's attacking you because you're righteous in God's sight. Or maybe you're becoming a child of God. Maybe you're growing toward becoming a child of God, and maybe He's trying to prevent that. If, it's, if, if uh, it's just that you have violated the law of nature, there's not much you can do about that. If it's a ch chastisement of God, then we ought to learn to accept it. Because He's doing it for our benefit. Perhaps he says you're not stretching yourself enough as a Christian. Maybe you need to grow more. Maybe you need to grow faster. 
Maybe he sees you heading in a direction which will result in the damnation of your soul and he's trying to turn you around and get you to change. You know, God won't stop us from sinning. He won't stop us, but he may try to warn us. You know, we're, we're, going, to, to suffer, we're going to react to suffering. My question is how? How are we going to react? I've got some advice for you in that regard. If in a case of suffering, you approach it from the viewpoint that it might be God's love chastising you, or it might be Satan trying to misdirect you and pull you away, if it's from God, it fulfills His purpose. If your suffering causes you to draw closer to God, if it's His chastising you, causes you to, to draw near Him and become more obedient to Him and to follow Him more perfectly, it fulfills His purpose. If it's from Satan, it frustrates His purpose. If you choose to cl draw closer to God, it frustrates His purpose. If you choose to become more obedient to God and not disobedient, it frustrates His purpose. If you use the occasion of suffering to examine your life and your relationship with God and root out sin that you find and draw closer to God, then it frustrates the purpose of Satan. If it's neither... If it's simply that you or someone else has broken one of the laws of nature and still in your examination you draw closer to God, then you begin to see how fragile life is and you draw closer to God. Then it fulfills His purpose. You see, that's how we ought to react to suffering. Because when we react in a positive way, when we use that suffering to cause us to draw closer to God, it fulfills the purpose of God. It frustrates the purpose of Satan. And if it's just a violation of nature, it makes us realize how badly we need God. I hope you've enjoyed this study this evening. If you have questions about this study, we'd be glad to, to uh, try to study that with you further. As, as I said in the beginning, I don't have all the answers to all the questions. But these are just some questions that I think we can apply and help us endure in times of suffering. If you're enduring suffering right now, our prayers are with you. And if we can do anything for you, if we can pray for you or visit with you about that and try to help you through that time, we want to do that. We'll be glad to do that. If you'll get a hold of us in some way, we'll be glad to take the time to try to help you in any way we can. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. And I hope you have a blessed evening. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.